This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. If you work as a cybersecurity leader, you might have the sentiment that compliance sucks. The traditional manual requests such as screenshots, spreadsheets, long meetings with auditors, really it's not a great experience. But luckily there's ByteCheck, a platform designed to make compliance suck less. With ByteCheck, you can establish your security program, automate your readiness assessment, and complete your SOC 2 examination faster, all from one single platform. Built with a robust set of integrations that connect to apps you use every single day. The ByteCheck integrations eliminate traditional manual evidence requests. The ByteCheck platform is powered by the ByteCheck engine, which automatically assesses your controls against audit and security best practices. ByteCheck is founded by cybersecurity and accounting industry leaders with a combined experience of over 30 years. That knowledge is ingrained into the ByteCheck engine to provide you with a quality report that meets applicable standards. If you're in the market for a SOC 2, we have a special limited time offer for Hacker Valley Studio listeners. You can get 50% off their annual subscription to the ByteCheck platform and a free readiness report from the ByteCheck team. Reach out to ByteCheck at www.bytecheck.com and let them know Hacker Valley Studio sent you. This is a limited time offer, so get it while you can. Ron and I are beyond excited to bring you a special guest. We have Robin Black, who is arguably the best martial arts analyst in the entire world. He believes the secrets to the universe lies in the sacred moments of combat. And that couldn't be any more true in cybersecurity. So what does cybersecurity have to do with martial arts and analysis? Let's jump right in to find out. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. I don't know if I'm allowed to say I have a favorite episode before we hit record, (laughs) but I know that this is going to go down as one of my favorites. We have a man of many talents, but most notably known as a martial arts commentator, analyst, and practitioner. Our guest today is Robin Black. I cannot wait to jump into this conversation, but most importantly, welcome to the show, Robin. Hey, thanks, guys. I I get a chance to chat with people like a fair bit, but I was really, really looking forward to talking to you guys. I love like sort of crossing streams and blending paradigms and stuff. I'm all about that. So I'm super into hanging with you guys. That is one of our favorite things to do is to cross those paradigms and have great conversations. I've been a huge fan of yours for years at this point. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Well, yeah, like you said, I I practice. I'm a martial artist and I'm practicing martial artist. And really only in the last year or so when somebody said, you know, hey, so what do you do? I say I'm a martial artist and you know I'm so proud to be able to <laughs> to be able to say that's what I do. Uh, when I was a little kid I was obsessed with martial arts. Growing up I was a performer as well. I sung in a rock band and did stuff like that but but essentially I study martial arts. I fought a bunch of times prof- as a professional combat athlete but essentially I study martial arts. I follow my curiosity to peel back the layers of what's happening. 
I learned lessons about fighting and about humans and about learning and about life. And then I try to find the right language to share what I find with people in hopes that they'll find it cool too. And sometimes, and now fairly often, people pay me to do that. <laughs> and it's crazy. And I'm, and I'm grateful and I'm super happy. And it's really cool I get to say that out loud. Love that. And it's always better when you're making money when you're doing what you love. <laughs> yeah. It's it's weird too. It's like I swear, like if you asked me 15 years ago, I would have insisted to you, you know, the key to it is to keep being authentically you and follow yourself to it and eventually you'll you'll get rewarded in whatever way is is correct is going to happen, but somewhere many times in that path I probably thought, oh, that can't be right. I probably got to figure out how to like, you know, adapt and and give people what they want. But now, right this minute in the world, I literally get to do do things my way, and I make a pretty good living getting to do it. And that's pretty pretty cool. It's it's really cool to be able to say out loud. I got a lot of respect for what you do because you have this ability to take events and situations real time and rapidly create a story out of it. And as someone that works in cybersecurity as an analyst, I have to do the same thing, but literally 10,000 times slower. And it it seems like you're interpreting and perceiving something much more than a martial arts fight or an event. What is the mindset for you as an analyst when you're watching these events and commentating and analyzing them? Yeah, there's a lot in there. You know, I, first of all, the speed, I think... So uh, how long will it take you to do a large chunk of your job, to do what's being asked of you, to interpret something for, for a client or for a purpose? How long might that take? The, the situation with us is we might have to go to Google. We might have to go to all these resources. So it could take as little as a few minutes. And that's really like as fast as we can go. Or it could take days and sometimes even weeks. But if I say to you, the world's going to explode if you can't get this done in two hours, you'll you'll get it done in two hours. Like, you so have true. To, right? like, and, and that's a bit of the thing. There's so many things. When you do anything, you do it passionately and obsessively, and you're on a quest to try to develop some level of mastery in what you do, there's a thousand things of your daily process that are going to help self-direct you to where you're going. And one of them for me was... I would slowly and typically always be analyzing martial arts. I, from the time I was a kid, I liked to find answers, but I also liked to delay forming opinions and drawing conclusions as long as possible so I can gather more information. Eventually, after during and after fighting, I got to do this thing that I love to do. I was on a 24-hour combat sports channel, and I got to make whatever I wanted. So I would stand there, and I would break down these cool moments. I'd sp- see these little things, and I would literally spend you know, four or five days watching the fight in many different ways, taking what I know, going into the gym and trying it with a coach, and then breaking it down and making a seven-minute thing. It would take me... 40 hours to make a seven minute thing. And I'd show it on TV and then we put it on the internet. I lost that job disappeared when that company stopped making content. And essentially I looked and I was like, maybe I could do this on Instagram, but I'd have to do it in a minute. And so all of a sudden there was a, a time constraint given to me. What I was capable of in a minute for the first 200 that I did, I can now accomplish in a meaningful way in 10 seconds. So I can do six times as much stuff. Also, in those, what took me 10 seconds to do, now each of them is much more, every word is much more nutrient-rich now. 
right? The, 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 the things, you know, I can't waste language in the short period of time. And that forced me to get better with language. It forced me to find other ways to, to transfer an idea. Imagine if you guys not had to, but got to go back and report to the people who have requested that you do something for them. And now you get to go and do it in poetry. Right. Right. You know, or you get to do it with color or you get to do it musically, or you get to do it uh, as a way to compare it to different foods and I get to do all that, right? There's no rules. What like the paradigm of analyzing martial arts didn't exist when I started doing it in 2012 and 13. There was none. So I had no rules. And it sort of existed in a role on television. The role of television sports analyst is a role that people fill the expectations and behave the way they think television analysts behave. I made sure to completely reject that and just literally learn to actually analyze martial arts, not play the role of a television analyst, but become an analyst of the martial arts. And then hopefully somewhere along the line, people would say the way he does it is interesting. Let's hire him briefly to do his thing in our environment. And that's how it ended up. And that's why I get to do it. What I do now is because I just sort of went to the root of it. What are we really doing? We're really trying to, one, learn something, two, bring value to the viewer, three, demystify these moments, but also show how magical they are, four, enrich the experience for the viewer, et cetera, et cetera. learn something, have fun, all of those things. That's the root of it. When you, that's the root, you work from the root. If you don't work from the root, you're like, what do television analysts do? They say, oh my God, it was a big right hand. He, he knocked him down. Now he's dishing out some granite pound. It's all over. That's what <laughs> television analysts do. I don't right. want to do that. I want to reject that and go back to the root and go, where did this start and where are we actually trying to get to? That's beautiful. You're like an art curator of, of violence, which is such an amazing thing. And you brought up being nutrient rich. In fact, we often teach people about an exercise where we would take someone who has written a report and we say, all right, now boil it down to 500 words. Okay, you got 500 words. Boil it down to 250 words. Yeah. Now boil it down to 100 words. At 100 words, there is no fat on that information. You have yeah. to be really specific of what words you use. But one word that you quite often use, and I'm so glad you use it, is bink. And it's <laughs> such a such an awesome, it's like sometimes it's dramatic, right? There's dramatic binks. Mm -hmm. There's comedic binks. There's so many things. One of my my favorite one minute breakdowns was uh, Hakuho and uh, Enho. Oh uh, uh, yeah, that was such such an amazing thing, and that really shows folks that size doesn't necessarily matter. Like it can be a component, but it doesn't dictate the game. And quite often we have these folks that are these small businesses and they have these small security teams, but they're versus very large adversaries. These folks that want to break into their networks, get their data. What would you have to say to the folks that are the little guy? How can you get that skill to defend yourself against a larger adversary? So cool. Such a cool way to look at it. So now, first of all, that was sumo and Enho is this small sumo and like, you know, literally half of the size of Hakuho in that situation though. And so I'm just clarifying this uh, just for the honesty of the conversation. That was 
a, a demonstration match, meaning they are not coordinating, doesn't have a preconceived outcome, but they are not going at 100%. They're allowing the storytelling of it to unfold. But that in no way diminishes your point. In fact, we can make the point a different way, that Brazilian jiu-jitsu, like most martial arts, this is a modern one, but m- like most martial arts, were designed to take somebody who may have weaker resources or less physicality or smaller size or a number of these things, and through skill and, and ability and knowledge and tactics, be able to defeat a larger, more powerful opponent. And agility, understanding, comfort level, you know, staying calm, being super familiar with it. I mean, if if you and I do jujitsu and I've done 6,000 hours of it and you've done six hours of it, just the comfort will allow me to flow and be free and be agile. And there's a million analogies from the tiny little rowboat is so much easier to move than the, than the ship so much easier to reorient. That's the answer for the smaller person against the bigger one. Know more than them, have more skills than them, use better strategies than them, and be capable, of, as you should be when you're smaller, be capable of change you know, and change around them. They change slowly. Large companies, monopolies, uh, things like that change much, much more slowly than small things. So that's how you defeat them, you know, with skill, with knowledge, with, with, with change, with surprise, and with confidence. It's interesting. We we mo- we recently had a season, and we spoke about an unhackable system. And we know that's not real, and it's not possible. And even though we wish it was, because we're going through this digital transformation, and it kind of seems like what you're describing is like there's kind of a notion sometimes that we have as a viewer that a fighter might be unbeatable. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Your point is is so it's crazy. Like everything you're saying is really, really making me see. And I and I I suspect a part of you guys doing this podcast is as you developed a true connection and expertise to your what you do, you started to see it in all things, right? And same thing. So I shouldn't be surprised that. And, and I'm sure you guys are not surprised that we're seeing such connection between martial arts and cybersecurity. You probably see connection between cybersecurity and baking when you watch, you know, <laughs> like the cooking network, right? I'm sure that you do. And I do too. I see that with, with my paradigm as well. But nothing is unhackable and nobody is unbeatable because we know we will never reach the, the maximum capacity of what's possible. So if you take it and really extrapolate it far, what is unhackable today, if we could jump into the future 20 years, would be rudimentary. Right. Because we're going to learn more. We're going to grow more. The technology is going to get better. Things we thought didn't work will work. Things that stopped working will work again. At Like martial arts, quite simply, if you say always keep your hands up and then you spar somebody who always keeps their hands up, a guy who keeps his hands down, breaking the, quote, rules of it will beat you. If you've sparred a hunt, if he's also very skilled and has all the other things, if it's unfamiliar, like, why is he keeping his hands down? That doesn't work. Wait a second. You'll be, you'll have, you know, hesitation and second guessing. He will, what the reason you're told to keep your hands up is if you drop your hands, your opponent will punch you. Well, why did he drop his hands? He wants you to punch him. You can tell he wants you to punch him. So you might not punch him, but now you're not punching him, which means you're not doing anything. Like all of those things happen as something becomes the thing to do, 
the opposite or something around it or something that seems improper will eventually become the thing to do, as well as we'll just know so much more. So 10 years in the future, I mean, and I do not say this lightly, I was a very low level professional martial artist that fought on the, the grassroots level. I would have a good chance against Hoist Gracie in UFC one, the best guy in the world, the guy who could defeat everybody because not because of of me, but because everything he taught changed everything that came after it. Mm -hmm. A fighter 20 years in the future will easily the the best or a high level fighter 20 years in the future will Khabib Nurmagomedov or John Jones or George St. Pierre, Conor McGregor, whoever will look like they're moving in slow motion. 20 years in the future. And that's the same thing with your unhackable system. Of course it'll be hacked. We'll know so much more. We'll be so much better. The technology, things that can't be defeated will be defeated as we expand our, our, and if it isn't in 10 years, it'll be in a thousand years, but it will happen. Right. And, you know, there's always these devastating cracks in probably both fields. And cybersecurity, unfortunately, it's phishing, getting those stray emails and clicking a link, or it's just a really weak password. What do you think are some of the most devastating cracks and flaws in fighting? I think the root of fighting is about belief systems, right? And and this is, you know, well, I think most of the flaws are flaws in thinking, right? And I'm sure it's the same thing. Why does phishing work? So that's a weakness in my thinking, right? Why is why do I make a bad password? Well, that's a weakness in my in my knowledge, right? It's always that. You know, we may say people kick the calf now and the the nerve on the outside of the calf causes the foot to drop and the leg to go numb or be inactive. That's a flaw. That's not a flaw. That's, that's That's a function of the human body. That was sitting there and interesting. And I know I'm going off topic, but have you, have you guys seen that as you watch fighting people kick the calf and the, and the leg goes numb. Yep. And now people do it. Right. And I was chatting with a doctor the other day and he was talking about that nerve. And I said, well, actually this is kicking the calf, you know, targeting the calf has been going on for about the last eight, 10 years in, in the professional sport fighting area. But really the one or two times the foot went numb uh, or the leg went went numb. Nobody really thought much about it. They thought it was random. Then when this started happening a lot, they were like, wait a second, we can target a nerve here and completely debil- debilitate our opponent. And I, and I said, you know, calf kick, the calf kick has been available for a thousand years, but it just wasn't done. It wasn't worth doing because we didn't really think about it. In Muay Thai, you don't kick the calf. It's just not really there. Also, the calf started getting targeted because as we fought at a further out distance, so you and I, you know, start fighting further away from each other. Uh, Wonder Boy, Stephen Thompson, Conor McGregor, these people started fighting at a further distance. If if I'm piecing you up at a further distance and eventually you're like, wait a second, I have to use my longest weapon, my leg, and hit your closest target, which is your calf. So they started doing it out of necessity for the for the environment created about range. If you did it enough, it happened enough that people started seeing, wait a second, this this reaction of you know debilitating the the, the leg of the opponent is frequent. Now it encourages you to do even more. It's like, wait, this isn't necessity anymore. This has a mac a, a, a great function. So it just these things just take shape. But the flaws are the biggest weaknesses, I think, are in our thinking. So if I if I have too high of an expectation of what will happen and an inability to deal with change, that's a flaw. You know, if I haven't prepared for my own 
anxieties, thoughts, fears, discouragement, that's a flaw. I think the biggest flaws right now are flaws in sort of preparing the mind of the combatants as the level gets higher and higher and higher. That is so perfect. And it segues perfectly to my next question, because I've seen it firsthand when a fighter who's been good, but then all of a sudden they step into that next level. And it's often not necessarily a physical thing. It's a mental thing. I used to train with Anla from uh, one uh, championship. I love uh, him. Current double champ. Amazing. I used to train with him. And now he's seemingly invincible at this point. The same thing with Anderson Silva for a time. Seemingly invincible. And I think it was all about their mindset. But then also there's this component of muscle memory and where muscle memory can be helpful, but it can also be harmful. And so these greats would actually play muscle memory against their opponent. 100%. And I would love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. So muscle memory is a slang. You know, we use it as a term, but medically speaking, it would be a slang to kind of take into account the idea that we, we create, a pre-programmed neurological response in you. So, and this is done all day, all the time in almost every sport. It's not controversial or weird or, or whatever. It's literally, you can stand in a bag and your coach or, or do it out in the, in the thing. Your coach will throw a jab at you. You slip, punch, slip, punch, slip, punch. Four or 5,000 of those. And now when punches come, you slip and punch. So you're basic, and it's called it. They call it an engram in neurology. So it's a it's an algorithmic response that will happen when a stimulus comes to you, right? So that's a great thing. As I'm coming up, every time somebody jabs, I slip and I hit them. Every time I get a low kick hits me, I throw an overhand right. And at the lower levels, this is how we prepare a counterpunch. We make anything that you give me, I have an answer that hurts you. But as you get better. You know exactly how to draw that thing out of me. And now I'm the predictable one. So if you want me to throw a right hand, you fake a jab or throw a jab, elicit my response. My response comes on demand. In fact, I can't even help it. It's been programmed into me. It's not absolute. As I start to understand it, I I edit my behavior in real time. They call it in in, um, military sort of strategy, they call it an OODA loop. O-O-D-A. You guys know, is this relevant 100%. in your field? Very yeah. relevant. Mm-hmm. Really? Yes. <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Uh, doesn't surprise me though, but it's the same, same idea, right? Like, so I will start to orient and, and observe and orient and, and, and edit my behavior through the process. But essentially you now get me to do that thing. That was a good answer to my problem, which was you punching me. Now you have an answer to that. And that becomes the entire game. And then my brain and the brain of any trained athlete will begin chunking information, right? And algorithmically cataloging threats. And I'm sure this is relevant in your guys. <laughs> we are going to algorithmically catalog threats. And then as, as we see them, we will respond in the way that we have prepared to respond. You will make me think it's a particular kind of threat, get my response. In me responding, you will penalize me for doing that. And I thought that I was answering a threat. In fact, I was, I was offering a scenario for you and that's fighting that. Is, and it's not just fighting, it's fencing. It's, it's ping pong. It's, it, I'm sure it's, it's relevant when you're under cyber attack. This is, this is just military strategy. This is just art of war. 
100%. That's where I got the OODA loop from, from the military. For folks that aren't familiar, OODA loop is observe, orient, decide, and act. And I was in Marine Corps intelligence. And so that cool. is how we did our analysis. And we still use it in cybersecurity today. And obviously, it's so important for fighting. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you dissect the actual fights themselves, whether it's an insect or it's Khabib versus a bear, you're able to dissect it in so many different ways. And I'm sure you have so many analogies for different ways of fighting, different strikes and things like that. But could you give us a little peek under the hood as to what the magic is when it comes to your analysis? Well, if I asked you guys how you did your jobs, you could tell me, but you would make me understand because I wouldn't fully understand it, but you'd make me understand better by telling me the steps to which you develop because it's really about developing that skill. So to develop the skill at first, I would be like, what's his stance like? How's he kicking? I, I, I became first obsessed with the, with the techniques. I trained them and I, and I fought and I became obsessed with the techniques. Then you realize that the techniques are really just tools. That'd be like obsessing with the tires of a car or like a paintbrush or, you know, or like uh, Prince is a, has an amazing guitar and the, and the strings vibrate so incredibly. It's like, it's not about the guitar. It's about Prince. So then I started to study the human and then I started to study how they learn. And then I started to, to see the connections and all things. Oh, you know, building a fighter is like building a stew. A stew is not just potatoes and meat and spice. It blends into another thing. It's a stew now. They're fighters. They're not just. And then I started to realize that the breaking everything up. At first, you break everything up. How do you, how do you learn to do jujitsu? How do you learn to box? How do you learn to kickbox? How do you learn to wrestle? How do you learn to move your feet, et cetera? Once you become good and really reach a level of mastery, you you dispel all those things. You reject all of those things. It becomes free fighting. Uh, so, you know, you, you go down these different paths. And then you start to see, I realize, okay, if it's about the human, then what's, you know, how is the body moving? Then you have to study sort of how the body all connects. Then you're like, well, how does that work? I could say, wow, it's amazing. He blocked a kick and threw a punch, but what actually happened? Oh, the brain saw gathered data as it was coming in, which went to the spinal cord, which elicited a reaction that had been pro. And you just keep learning, 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 learning. So I used to have structured ways. I'd sit down and say, I'm going to talk about the kick. I'm going to talk about this knockout, whatever. But so, yeah, you, you know, I would start to look at it from specific ways, but then I studied my job from a different way. I started to study, okay, how do jazz, when, when, when a jazz quartet is playing, how does the solo take place? Or when a freestyle rapper is rapping, what's actually happening? Because that's, you see similarities to what my job becomes to, to people who do that. And the real function you end up in the grand, as it all loops back, is just like fighting. You gather as much skill and ability and knowledge and ideas and plans as possible. And then to do it, you go in and allow it to happen. You just go in and allow it to happen. So I no longer have a structured way that I do it. And I think that's why I'm, I personally am really enjoying my work. It's, I approach it holistically. It's not about technique or it's not about biology or it's not about mindset. It's not about strategy. It's not about comparing it to a chili or a stew. It's not about poetry. It's not about learning a lesson from breaking out of a half guard. It's just whatever it uh, feels 
you know, I allow it to inspire me to express something. And now that's, that's the stage I'm at. And it's an incredibly joyful stage to be at. Dang. You know, as you're speaking, I'm like, there's literally 10 other jobs that you can take right now. If you didn't want to be a commentator anymore, you could surely be a cybersecurity analyst just with that mentality. You could probably be an expert witness, you know, because you have this expertise in being able to understand how other people are learning and how other people are breaking down topics and how topics have this transference of information that might lead to other things. And when I'm learning something new, like I think that I learn best from people that are experts in in that type of thing. There's this guy, Jim Quick, that I follow, and he's an expert in understanding how to learn. So he teaches people how to learn. And it's all about kind of building foundations when you need them and allowing the mind to be creative and understand things that might not be apparent to you at first glance. So it sounds like you're kind of doing those, those things. You're understanding based off of some of the knowledge that you have and you're rapidly allowing new information to come in, even though things might not be related. Very much so. And I get the most excitement out of the unrelated. That's why literally, like I, I, when you guys were messaging me, I was like, totally down, staying in touch. Can't wait to talk because this is, I learn more in these environments. Now I learn a lot from working with a a karate master or a boxing master for sure. But in sort of this long form form, I, I learn so much more now. I'm deeply curious about a painter's process. I'm deeply curious. My wife is, is uh, a, a theater performer. You know, how are they learning to choreograph these things? I'm deeply curious about it because ultimately, whether we're looking at, you know, when I do my job, I'm looking at fighting and I'm explaining it to people. What we are looking at is the actualization of this human's potential. This person 10 years ago could not do this thing. Now they can. They were once a regular person. Now they're like a superhero. How is that possible? And is that possible for everyone in some other way? And ultimately, I think we're all, you know, anyone who's going down a path of mastery in a particular subject is looking at the secrets to learning and growing. I think that's that's one of the deep underlying aspects. There's a book that I read that kind of summed this up really nicely or you know made me think down lines along this point really nice. It's called Mastery by Robert Greene. You know Love it. it. Oh yeah, yeah, we have it. You have it. Yeah, right? Like when you looked at these different masters in their fields, how did what did they have in common? Well, they went through a time of learning, they went through a time of trying, they went through they they they, they learned particular large lessons that we can apply to things. One of my favorite concepts that I picked up there was the idea of negative capability. We humans are very fragile creatures and we don't like uncertainty and it freaks us out. And we are always looking for explanations and sort of to make sense of things and to find stability. So we naturally draw conclusions and form opinions. And if I said to somebody, delay forming an opinion, fight to form your, from forming an opinion, you'll find it powerful. They'll say, I'm entitled to my opinion. And I'll say, that's a trap. You're, you're trapping yourself unknowingly. We take very little, the average person, with if we don't think about these things or, or practice these things in any way, most of us literally form an opinion automatically without effort or learning or thought. It just sort of forms. And that natural desire to form an opinion or draw a conclusion is a big weakness if you're going to keep learning. So along the, and was it Einstein? 
to, to really, really sort of, and I wouldn't say invent, you'd say discover the theory of relativity. Einstein lived in that state for two years. For two years, he lived in a state of not jumping to conclusions or forming opinions. You know, that's how he did it. And it's a powerful thing. And that's one of the things I kind of took away from from that book. That's so true. You can't solve a, a new problem with with an old mind. And mm. to think about that, I would love for us to be able to add to your collection of wisdom. So is there any cybersecurity type of question or insight that we can give you to kind of provide to that wealth of knowledge that you have? That's interesting because I don't even, you know, my questions would be so, you know, knee jerk or, or first layer. Like I almost don't really understand the basic presumption of how my, my, I might be under attack now, not that I have anything of, of, you know, intense value, but like my basic self, I am building content for platforms and sharing ideas and having the most basic interactions that people have now. I don't even understand how much danger my information or me could be in or how much threat is out there or the most rudimentary things to do about it. That's the level that's the level I'm at. You you know the, I would love to hear Chris's opinion on this kind of that that comment also, but I think that there's something that's much more valuable to an, a, a hacker, uh, an adversary, than your information. Because it might not be that interesting. It might be very interesting. But you have something that is going to convert that information into something tangible, which is crown jewels. You have money. You got money in the bank. Attackers are going to want it. So mm-hmm. everyone's really a target. And there is this notion of ransomware. These attackers, they drop something on your computer, they encrypt all your files, and then they're like, hey, if you want your files back, you got to pay us a small fee. It might be $1,000, it might be $10,000, it might be 100000 if you're a big organization, but they kind of, uh, it's almost like regular criminal activity that is kind of much more than just the data behind it. And for individuals, it's almost like what neighborhood do you live in? Because you can live in a neighborhood, like you said, you don't have a lot of things that anybody would want. So you might have some some club fighters, some some fighters that know a little bit. And so they're trying to, you know, test the waters and see what they can get out of you. But if you live in this other neighborhood where you have a lot to lose, you have Michael Venom pages, you have a thousand of them Mm. walking around ready to take your lunch. You have a bunch of Anderson Silva's ready to, to, and in in those neighborhoods, you have to be able to protect yourself. So you have to train, you have to focus. So Mm. it's really depends on which neighborhood you live in for cybersecurity. Yeah. makes sense. Right. And that's a, a really good analogy. I feel like I have a basic sort of intuition would definitely be the wrong word. I would say skepticism. Like, and, and so this might be a question. Right now, I've got a pretty good sense of what's probably, it's, it seems quite obvious to me, it may be less so to my, to my mother, who's older and, and alone, but it seems quite obvious to me if somebody wants to get, uses a phishing thing to try to get my password or get my bank account or get that stuff. It feels fairly obvious to me what is likely to happen so it's like, you know, when a guy fakes a Superman punch, he throws a low kick, and then in the next time he pumps it back and throws a, a leaping punch. Once upon a time that worked. Now it doesn't work on any high-level fighter for, oh, this is interesting too, for a long period of time because it's so obvious. But then fighters stop throwing it in the gym. 
So it doesn't happen for two or three years. So it's less obvious, less expected, and then it actually works again. It actually starts to work again. Wow, that's incredible. Robin, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really sincerely from the bottom of my heart, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. For the folks that want to keep up with you, your analysis, and all of the great things that you have going on, what are the best ways that people can do that? Well, my one-minute breakdowns are probably the thing that a lot of people seem to, to enjoy. I've done about 1,500 of them, and they've just broken a billion views, which is so crazy. But uh, people can see those on Instagram, at Robin Black Martial Arts, on Twitter, at Robin Black MMA. Yeah, I put them on all my platforms, and I, I hope people follow Bellator MMA on uh, YouTube because I put a lot of cool stuff up there that I really enjoy. But, uh, but in, in general, if I do my job right, it'll reach, eventually reach people who want to see my stuff. Perfect. We will drop all of those resources in the show notes. I would highly recommend everyone to check out your YouTube channel. I kind of binged it weeks ago when we first reached out to you. And I think I got through probably like around 30 videos. So (laughs) thanks for that. (laughs) And with that, we will see everyone next time.